Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lauren, and thank you, Amy, for uh, being our scripture readers this morning. Good morning, church family. It has been a minute since I have regaled you all with stories from my childhood, so brace yourself. Um, I used to share childhood stories quite frequently in messages. A handful of years ago, we did a sermon series called Seed and Soil, where we looked at all of the stories where Jesus used agricultural references and allusions to help explain the kingdom of God. Having grown up on a three-acre corner parcel of land on my grandfather's 160-acre cattle farm in rural Alberta, Canada, this series was ripe for childhood stories. That is to say, it was ripe for childhood stories from me, not from CJ. If you were to place our respective childhoods on a continuum from urban metropolitan to more cows than people, we are at opposite ends of the spectrum. I've created a Venn diagram to summarize the common ground in our respective childhoods, and here it is. We were both, both born to human parents, yes. And that's about it. Um, I've been told more than once that my childhood um, may have been exceedingly quaint and idyllic and overly Mayberry, but, but hey, it's the only childhood I've got, and the story that I'll share this morning isn't about planting potatoes or weeding the giant garden behind our house, or helping grandpa during calving season. So hopefully it will at least be somewhat relatable to you all, especially if you grew up in church. I will admit, family life for me was about as close to perfect as one could imagine. I had two parents who loved each other and loved their kids as best as they knew how, Every Sunday, we drove the 17-mile trek to Hope Christian Reformed Church, just north of the town of Stony Plain, which was the closest town to where we lived. If you have ever seen a Norman Rockwell painting of a little white steepled church, that was our church. It was a Dutch rural church filled with mostly Dutch rural people, cattle farmers, pig farmers, potato farmers, wheat farmers, and their wives, and their children, and their children's children. The older men wore overcoats and fedoras, and the women wore long dresses and hats, and the dads all handed out quarters to their children so they could participate in the offering. And they handed out peppermint candies, candies halfway through the sermon, perfectly timed to minimize the growing fidgety unrest of us little ones. And when church ended, the men would congregate outside and offer to light one another's cigarettes because the Surgeon General's warning had not yet made its way to Stony Plain, Alberta. The women would huddle together to talk about how Lena Scheidemann was recovering from hip surgery or offer their condolences to Mrs. Weber, whose mom had just passed away. And all the while, they kept a watchful eye on their children who by now had fully surrendered to the small sugar high from dad's earlier well-timed peppermint candy. Sundays were good days. The parking lot was almost always full because this is what people did on Sundays. Work stopped and people went to church. Elaine Bruxford, the pastor's wife, played the piano and we sang hymns. Pastor Ralph Bruxford delivered the message, 
And when Pastor Ralph would read out the Scripture reference for the day, I was always one of the first to find it in the blue hardcover RSV uh, Pew Bible. I loved the Bible. Like, I really loved it. As a kid, I read it on my own regularly. And without any prompting or urging, or urging from my parents, I frequently committed passages of Scripture to memory. Every summer, my parents would send me and my two little sisters off to Ross Haven Bible Camp, which I adored. And yes, the camp speakers were perhaps a little heavy-handed, and fear-based appeals were a common element at the campfire altar calls. But despite whatever questionable theology may have been preached, both at camp and at my home church, in all of my preteen years, I have no memories of ever feeling like I didn't belong or that I was unloved, which is high praise. Here is photographic evidence of my love for Bible camp. Just look at that grin. And as proof of my love of the Bible, check out the caption beside the photo from my mom. You always won awards for Bible verse memorization. And I did. Every year, I had an incredibly effective short-term memory. And on the first day of Bible camp, every camper was given a list of, that, of the week's Bible references from both the Old and the New Testament. And throughout the week, as you were able to commit these verses to memory, you would find a camp counselor, recite the verse to them, and get your Bible verse list initialed and checkmarked beside that particular verse. And at the end of the week, one boy and one girl would be crowned as the Bible memorization champions. And it was almost always me and my older sister, Cheryl. And the prize, a new Bible. We had lots of Bibles in our house. Yes, I loved the Bible, and I still do. It's the Word of God. Up to this point in my story, there may not be any obvious overlap between your story and mine. Apart from Colby Freeman, whose overly churched childhood closely resembles my own, I'm not sure how many Bible memorization prize winners or youth group sword drill champions are in our midst, but let me attempt to point out at least one area of common ground that we likely share. If you grew up in church, or even if you came to faith a bit later in life, you likely came to believe and understand that the Bible is the Word of God. That is our Venn diagram overlap. In our faith stories, whether yours is Norman Rockwellian, like mine, or far from it, this phrase is likely found in the common space of our faith journeys. And if this is indeed true, our gospel story of the transfiguration of Jesus on Mount Tabor presents us with a beautiful and important challenge and message. I hope that you find this as intriguing and captivating as I have found it to be. Just one week before Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him for this wild and transcendent moment on Mount Tabor, Jesus was with his disciples in the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked them, who do you say that I am? 
And Peter, the Enneagram 6 loyalist who was rarely short on things to say, answered, saying, You are the Christ, the Messiah. Perhaps this is part of what is going on in the transfiguration story. Jesus is affirming Peter's answer. He is lifting the veil to give Peter, James, and John a thin space, a portal through which they can see Jesus for who He really is. And let there be no doubt, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Peter was right. But I have come to see that there is much more going on here in this story than simply an affirmation of Peter's beautiful declaration of faith. First, why is it Moses and Elijah who appear with Jesus? Why not Abraham and David or Jacob and Joshua? Well, it's important to remember that Moses is a Jewish shorthand way of saying law. And Elijah is a Jewish shorthand way of saying prophets. And as such, Moses and Elijah are representative of the whole of the Jewish story and the Jewish scriptures. Early in Jesus' ministry, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And here on Mount Tabor, Jesus is standing with the two figures who represent the law and the prophets. And this transfiguration moment is the fulfillment of this verse. What Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, had begun, Jesus would now fulfill, would now complete. What the law and the prophets were always trying to say but could never fully articulate would now be said fully and completely in Jesus. Or as Brian Zond writes in his beautiful book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, God couldn't say all he wanted to say in the form of a book, so he said it in the form of a human life. Jesus is what God has to say. That's, and that's what we see on the Mount of Transfiguration. So in the Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets, they are passing the mantle of redemption on to Jesus. The law and the prophets were indeed lighting the way, but they were more like the moon and the stars in the night sky, guideposts in the darkness. But in Jesus, morning was breaking and the sun was rising. A new day was dawning. The fullness of God was now on display. Peter's initial response seems to miss the significance of this moment. He wants to build three tents or shelters, one for each of them, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. And if we're willing to see it, this is a window into Peter's theology. By wanting to treat them equally with three identical shelters, he is equating Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets, as having roughly the same authority as Jesus, which is problematic. Brian Sond devotes an entire chapter to this story in his book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, and I am drawing heavily from that beautiful chapter in this message. When we give an even footing to the law and the prophets and to Jesus, we end up with a flattened text 
where no verse holds any more authority than any other. As Brian Zond writes, if no verse holds more weight than any other, Jesus' teaching of nonviolence in the Sermon on the Mount can be conveniently ignored because we found divine sanction for violence in the Old Testament. In other words, in a flattened Bible, Jesus can be overruled by Moses and Elijah. And now, back to our text, our story. Rabbi, this is Peter, it is good for us to be here. Let us set up three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And listen again to how God responds to Peter's suggestion. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. When the cloud clears away, Jesus is the last man standing. Moses and Elijah are gone, and this is significant. We are learning that the law and the prophets are penultimate, secondary to Jesus. There is a difference between the Word of God, lowercase w, and the Word of God, uppercase w. One of them is the Bible, and the other is Jesus. And Jesus is what God has to say. In John's Gospel, after a night spent on the Mount of Olives, Jesus went down into Jerusalem, into the temple, and people started to gather, and Jesus sat down and began to teach them. But they were soon interrupted by a group of Pharisees, the self-proclaimed guardians of the law, the Mosaic law. And devoid of any compassion whatsoever, through intimidation and coercion, they mercilessly force a woman to stand before Jesus and the crowd, and loud enough for everyone to hear, their leader shouts out, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now, in the law of Moses commanded us, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were right. Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Reading from my completely made-up American Evangelical Dominion translation that supports our religious penchant for violence, John 8, verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Verily, I say unto thee, thou hast provided a steadfast scripture as testimony in your case. My hands are bound, thus it is concluded. Let us procure some stones forthwith. Of course, that is not what happened. Jesus does something new. He supersedes the old story. He takes a stick and writes in the dirt, possibly words or names that would have brought to mind the sins and vices of the accusers. And he says, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And in this moment, if something like the transfiguration could have happened with this veil of clouds forming overhead and a divine voice breaking through, similar words would have been spoken to the crowds gathered around. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Jesus, not Moses, is God's ultimate act 
of self-disclosure. Jesus is what God looks like. And Jesus is how God acts. We cannot quote Moses to silence Jesus. With his request for three shelters, Peter wasn't the only one who failed to fully understand the meaning of this moment. He wasn't the only one to struggle with the idea that the law and the prophets are penultimate, secondary to Jesus. Luke's gospel also includes the transfiguration story. You can read it in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. But just a few verses later, we read the story of Jesus beginning his final journey into Jerusalem. And their path is going to take them through a Samaritan village. So Jesus sends a few of his disciples ahead to prepare for his arrival. But instead of receiving Jesus, this village leaned into the age-old animosity that existed between them and the Jews, and they rejected Jesus. Based on James and John's reactions, perhaps they were Enneagram Sixes as well, loyal above all, and with some indignance and perhaps some wringing of their hands in righteous anger, they ask Jesus, Lord, Do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Just like the Pharisees wanting to put to death the adulterer by referencing Scripture, James and John make their request with biblical precedent. This time the appeal isn't to Moses, but to Elijah. And it's a wild story. King Ahaziah of Israel in Samaria has fallen ill. And to learn of his fate, he sends messengers to inquire of the prophets of the false god Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron. The prophet Elijah learns of the king's request and how he is seeking out false gods instead of the true God of Israel. And he intercepts the messengers, and he sends them back to the king with a message, which I'm paraphrasing here, but the gist of it is this. You have made a really bad choice, and you're going to die. Understandably, King Ahaziah, not a big fan of the message that he receives, and he decides to confront the prophet Elijah directly. He sends a captain with 50 soldiers to apprehend Elijah and bring him to the city of Samaria. Elijah, true to his reputation as a zealous and fiery prophet, calls down fire from heaven, consuming the captain and his 50 men. Here's the verse. Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Which is precisely what happens. King Ahaziah learns of this, sends another captain and another 50 men to Elijah. Guess what happens? The exact same thing. Elijah does it again. And so in the spirit of this precedent set by Elijah, James and John ask their question, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Again, reading from my completely made-up American Evangelical Dominion translation, Luke 9, 55, Jesus turned to them and said, Verily I say to thee, thy counsel hath precedent in the holy writ, and I am bound to uphold it. So be it. Let us proceed and unleash a campaign of fiery dread and astonishment. Of course, that's not what happened. 
And by the way, I discovered it is really fun to make up things that Jesus would never say in a King James style of voice. Just like the story with the adulterous woman, Jesus supersedes the old story. He supersedes precedent. Reading from actual Luke 9, verses 55 and 56, Jesus turned about and rebuked them, saying, You know not what manner of spirit you are of. The Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Again, if something like the transfiguration could have happened, could have repeated with a veil of clouds forming overhead and a divine voice breaking through, God would have said, James and John, clearly you were not listening the first time. So let me say it again. This is my son, my beloved. Listen to him. Jesus, not Elijah is God's ultimate act of self-disclosure. Any precedent that may have been set by Elijah is neither ultimate nor final. Love your enemies is greater than let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Jesus is what God looks like and how God acts. You cannot quote Elijah to silence Jesus. In fact, you cannot quote any part of the Bible to silence Jesus. Listen to what Brian Zond says or how he rebukes this approach to Scripture. Whenever we rummage through Scripture and drag out Moses or Elijah, or, or sorry, Moses or Joshua or Elijah or David to mitigate what Jesus teaches about peacemaking and loving our enemies, We are trying to build an Old Testament tabernacle on the holy mountain of Christ's glory, to which God says, no. So, if Moses instructs capital punishment and Elijah models violent retribution, I remember Mount Tabor and the voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. The final testimony of Moses and Elijah is to recede into the background so that Jesus stands alone as the full and true Word of God. Jesus is what God has to say. In a very real sense, the story of Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus is a story about how to read Scripture. It teaches us that Jesus is our hermeneutic, the filter and lens through which we read the Bible. And this is not a low view of Scripture. This is a high view of Christ. Back to our Venn diagrams. I wasn't being entirely truthful when saying that CJ's and my only overlap was being born to human parents. Coming out of high school, CJ was nationally ranked and recruited as one of the top college quarterbacks. In grade one, I received the best boy award in track and field at Duffield Elementary, June 19th, 1978, which means that we also share notable athleticism. 
But in our shared faith Venn diagram, where I had earlier suggested the Bible is the Word of God is common between us, I want to offer an amendment and an addition. First, I want to make sure that any reference to the Bible as the Word of God uses a lowercase w. And second, and related, I'd want to add the phrase, Jesus is the Word of God, uppercase w. Or to use Brian Zahn's language, Jesus is what God has to say. Back when I was that nine-year-old kid, first reading and memorizing Scripture, I wish that someone had told me two things. One, Scripture is not flat and equally weighted. And two, there is a progression in the Bible's understanding of who God is and what God is like. Perhaps those would have been difficult concepts to try and communicate to a notably athletic nine-year-old, but I wish that someone had tried. To illustrate both of these points, consider these two texts. In Leviticus 12, verses 1 to 5, Moses says that women who give birth to a daughter are unclean for twice as long as those who give birth to a son. 14 days instead of seven. Galatians 3.28 says, there is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. We cannot weight these texts equally, and nor are we to find a middle ground between them. The Galatians text, it wins. Or, to use imagery from the transfiguration story, when the cloud clears away, only Jesus remains. Does this make the Leviticus text useless? Not at all. If we are willing to see it, the, the Leviticus text is also pointing us toward Christ, however dimly. It is like a star in the night sky pointing the way. In the late Bronze Age, when Moses wrote these words, the treatment of women was deplorable. In a world where military strength was of ultimate importance, women were largely non-persons, except that they had wombs that might produce sons. And according to law code from the late Bronze Age, from the Middle Assyrian period around the time of Moses, Here's what men were allowed to do. A man may whip his wife, pluck out her hair, mutilate her ears, or strike her. It bears no penalty. And so, while Moses' words ascribing girls as half the value of boys seems barbaric to us, in that moment in history, this was movement in the right direction. This was an acknowledgement of personhood. This was the beginning of a trajectory towards seeing the dignity of all persons. And this trajectory can be seen all throughout Scripture. Quoting from A New Kind of Christian by Brian McLaren. 
Humanity cannot do better than their very best at any given moment to communicate about God as they understand God. And Scripture faithfully reveals the evolution of our ancestors' best attempts to communicate their successive best understandings of God. And this trajectory, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Because Jesus is what God has to say. In this Lent season, we are hoping to encourage some spiritual practices and disciplines, including scripture reading. And here is a suggested application from this message. When reading scripture, don't be afraid of the Old Testament. If it doesn't sound like Jesus, that's okay. It isn't. The moon and the stars, the law and the prophets, they provide light, but they are not the sun. If the story sounds barbaric and uncivilized or outdated and regressive, keep reading and look for trajectory. It's probably there. The Bible is the story of a people moving toward Christ. And may that be our trajectory and our story as well. If you have kids or grandkids, and if you ever read Bible stories with them, let them know that not every story is equal. Things that Moses and Elijah or David or Joshua might model or say about violence or manhood or womanhood or how to treat strangers or or how to treat foreigners, all of that bows to Jesus. In fact, all of Scripture bows to Jesus. In this sense, we are not called to be biblical. You are not called to be biblical. We are called to be Christ-like. Why? Because while violence can be defended as biblical, it can never be defended as Christ-like. And perhaps that is a word not just for your kids and your grandkids when you read stories to them, but that's a word also for all of us. Let's pray together. Holy One, thank you for your word. Just as there is a trajectory and movement in Scripture toward Christ, may there be a trajectory in our lives in the same direction. May our understanding and the unfolding of Christ's life into our own lives show progress and growth. When we read the Word of God, lowercase w, may it lead us to the true and ultimate Word of God, your Son, Jesus. Amen.